0: is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid and Web Yeshiva bringing you a conversation on democracy and Judaism. We are recording this conversation on Election Day in the United States, what, will, what seems to be a historical election even though we don't yet know the results. And we are 99 days away from Election Day here in Israel. So we are in election fever, and we hope this will be the first of a series of conversations with our with our faculty at Web Yeshiva. Today we are talking with Rosh Yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Bravender and Rabbi Yitzhak Blau, who are longtime discussants from their long association, both as faculty members of Yeshiva Timiftar, where Rabbi Bravender was the founding Rosh Yeshiva for many years. They are both now uh, with us, of course, at Uh, at at Web Yeshiva and we're talking about the question of uh, democracy as a as a political situation as a political solution from a Torah perspective to what degree is it legitimate to what degree is it desirable to what degree is it the ideal particularly in light of the fact that it seems apparent that the Torah seems to prefer kingship as the ideal political solution. We will start with Rabbi Yitzchak Blau.
1: It seems to me that there are two complications in trying to derive political answers in a straightforward way from our traditional sources. And the first complication is the fact that we've gone nearly 2,000 years without real Jewish sovereignty and autonomy and self government And this means that there is less rabbinic discussion about governmental issues during this time. And even the discussion that exists was often in the theoretical sphere. So to speak, it wasn't tried in the crucible of reality where new cases come up and new phenomena have to be addressed. And I think whenever we discuss uh, halakhic or Jewish issues of government, this is a difficulty. There are many spheres where this is true, If one looks at issues of military ethics and the like, one often has a sense that we're lacking the body of rabbinic literature we need over the years to truly address the issues. So I think that's one complicating factor. The other complicating factor is it may be that inherently our system has more flexibility in these issues than other things. In other words, when Allah wants to define what a lulav is, it can define it fairly rigidly, and that definition can work for eternity. Right. There's a sense that that's something that there could be a more clear-cut answer to. And perhaps when it comes to national, economic, and political questions, there's a sense that clearly defined ritual answers are not that easy to come by. And it may be that the halakhic system, that Torah itself builds in a certain flexibility with regard to these issues. So these, I think, are two things to keep in mind when we're discussing, when we're looking at traditional sources about Torah democracy. I just want to outline a few of the issues, uh, a few different directions I think this conversation could go. One, as mentioned by Rabbi Sachs, one simple question is the form of government. Right. The one possibility is to have a monarchy where the monarch is picked by the prophet coming from the word of God, where there's a hereditary inheritance of the kingship in a certain family line. And that is obviously quite different than a democracy where people are elected by popular will and they're changed every some odd years. There's no sense of hereditary transfer of power. Right? That's certainly one conflict we could talk about. Another conflict would have to do with certain cluster of ideas that we today associate with democracy. One issue might be the coercive power of the state. Right? Does the state coerce certain religious values, or certain religious practices? Right? We'd associate democracy today with a certain freedom of religion. Perhaps halakha would have a more coercive element. That would be another conflict that one could talk about. Uh, One could talk about a conflict regarding where the source of legislation is. Is legislation ultimately the word of God? Or is legislation coming from popular will? I think there's a series of potential conflicts we could talk about. And perhaps we'll get to them all here. I'd like to start with a few words about the first conflict, about the conflict of the monarchy. And obviously if Halakha demands a monarchy, if this is a mitzvah, so my opening caveat about greater flexibility would seem to be not true. A Halakha demands a monarchy, and that's something we should be striving for, even if today we're not able practically to fulfill it. So just to very briefly review some of the ideas, right, there is a passage in Tvarim, in Parsha Shoftim, where it says, Selim Tassim halacha. Arguably this would seem to be a command to create a monarchy. Uh, two factors right away perhaps call this into question. One is that the Pasek introduces it in a very interesting way. It says, Va Marta. The people will say, Som tisimala chamelech. And a question is raised, why the Pasek needs to address it that way? Why is it dependent on the people's request? If it's a command, it's simply a command, right? So there are ways one could say it's a command and still deal with this problem of Va Marta. Maybe the people are commanded to request it. At the same time, it calls the absolute command into question. Secondly, of course, is the reaction of Shmuel Hanavi, when the people actually demand the Melech at the time of Shaul. Right, Shmuel is quite negative. And he also outlines the various possible, perhaps, abuses of power that are inherent in the system of monarchy. And if it's a mitzvah, it's hard to imagine that that Shmuel would be so negative. Now again, as mentioned, those who think it's a mitzvah can deal with that. Perhaps Shmuel objected to the nature of the request or the form of the request took so, rather than the basic request, but it does call the mitzvah into question. Uh, I'm not going to give a long share on this. I'll just mention this is really a debate throughout Jewish history. Reading the Gemara in Sanhedrin, on the bed, there's a machloket Tanaim, a kinetic debate that whether the kingship is a mitzvah or not. If one goes to the Mefarshim and Chumash, one sees the same split. Right, with the Ibn Ezra and Som Tasim says one word, Rishutah. This is a voluntary practice. The uh, Rambam famously says it's a mitzvah. And many we show them line up on different sides of this question. So already we see a certain debate about this. I'd like to focus on two particular sources which I think will speak to us. One from the Middle Ages and one from modernity. And that is the ideas of the Abarbanel and the Mitzvah. The Barbernell, it's fairly famous, was not a fan of the monarchy. And one might argue that he personally experienced some of the possible abuses in the system of monarchy. And he suggests a system which really is uh, quite uh, similar to modern democracy. He says there's no reason why uh, consensus cannot be formed from multiple voices. He's kind of responding to arguments for the kitchen. Someone might say it's more uh, practical. You have one voice, you don't have to deal with... uh, it's easier to make quick decisions. So now there can be a system where you have majority vote among the, you could form a consensus. And he also says it, it's valuable to have a system where, where he says, let it be uh, for a certain period of time, and then other people will come in. And why is that good? So he mentions a number of factors. When new rulers come into power, they'll replace their predecessors. The yach et and they'll investigate the faults or the, even the sins of the earlier ones. I mean, you have a built-in system for correcting abuse, right? The mon- in the system of monarchy, the king is just uh, immersed in power. It's not clear how one uh, conf- kind of conf- confronts the abuse of power, whereas in a more democratic system, so you vote them out of power, right? There is a built-in system of correcting abuse. Not only that, he mentions another factor later on. He says, actually I should really mention three factors. He says that, since they're in power for a temporary period, and they know, right, so to speak, their, their quality of their rule is subject to review in the next election, the fear of humanity will be upon them, meaning they have a sense that they're beholden to the people. That's another factor. I should throw in a third factor. He also says, that Pesha is more likely to be an abuse of power in one person right there's no checks and balances so the has mentioned a number of factors the fact the ability to throw the monarch out of the government out of power that fear that that creates to kind of serve as a check on how the government functions and thirdly thirdly the factor that one person is more likely to abuse the power and even uh, refers to, again, I'm not an expert on medieval government, but he refers to the governmental structure in Venice and Florence, where he points to a more democratic system, which he, uh, he holds up as an ideal to show that it works pragmatically. And I think uh, I think many of us uh, growing up in modernity would relate and identify with much of what de Barbanel says. That's one source I want to mention. The other source I want to mention, and I'll, I'll bring my opening remarks to a close here, is something that Ziv says. The Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin is here working as the Rosh Hashivah in the mid-1800's. Obviously coming from a very different uh, culture than the Yavar And he has an interesting reading of the word Vamarta. Right. Going back to our opening question, I basically said either it's a mitzvah or it's not. Or perhaps to rephrase that, either it's an obligation or it's not an obligation. But, if you're going to do it, the Torah tells you how to do it. There, of course, might be a third possibility that it's an obligation given certain factors. So the Nitziv says something fascinating that I think relates to my opening remarks. The Nitziv assumes that there is no one ideal government. There's not even one ideal Jewish government. Halakha cannot say exactly how a government is supposed to behave, or how it's supposed to be structured, because it depends a great deal on factors of time and place. There could not be, again, a concrete, richly defined ideal government in the way that you could talk about the ideal et as it were. Right, so the netziv says, how do we define it? The will of the people is a barometer of what the correct government of the time should be. Let's go back to the pasuk. We noticed the Aati of the pasuk. The pasuk says, marta the people have to request the king. Says the netziv, if the people request a king, that's an indicator that at this time and place, a king would be the right thing. Right, again, if the netziv gives a certain uh, credence or a certain belief in the will of the judgment of the people, which I admit one could quit with, one can say the people are getting it wrong all the time. But then the natif gives a certain credence in the will of the people. If the people want the king, that's an indicator that perhaps the current structure really requires a monarchy. And then it becomes an obligation to instill, to install the monarchy. Whereas if the people don't make that request, then this is really not an obligation. And I think the natif speaks very much to the issue at hand. So just to uh, sum up what we've said, I realize I have not addressed some of the other issues of where legislation comes from or the coercive nature of the state regarding religious matters. But I think regarding the monarchy, where I think many of us would really identify with things the Barbanel says. One last line of the Barbanel I'd like to quote: the Barbanel says he talks about hanisayon al-hekech. hakesh. What is hanisayon hakesh? Experience is more important than logic. I.e., uh, he, he looks around and he says, we see that the monarchy leads to certain abuses, and in his time he thought the democratic institutions of Florence and Venice are a better model. I think certainly someone who's experienced the last 100 years of human history would very much identify with this. It's certainly not that democracy is a flawless system, it's certainly not that democracy, nothing immoral or problematic religiously could happen, it certainly can. But we look around the last 100 years of history and we compare democratic governments with totalitarian and fascist and communist governments and even governments of the monarchy and I think uh, the competition is not even close. Right? The abuses of power and the mistreatment of people that's happened in uh, a system of uh, one leader of a fascist dictator and those types of government, think they're far worse than anything that's happened under democratic governments. And in that sense I think we agree with the Barbinel Hanision right? Gobera-like case. Experience in this issue should be more powerful for us than logic. Again, that does not mean there aren't a whole bunch, a host of religious conflicts we have to address. We have to address, will the state coerce religion, where legislation comes from. I fully admit that, but I think that on some ultimate level, our sympathies here are with you, too. that the Torah does not ultimately address or demand monarchy in every political situation, and that we very much identify with the advantages that democracy has bestowed upon peoples. I think it was Churchill who said that that democracy was the worst system of governance
0: except all the other systems which have already been tried Rabbi Brabender
2: He was good with the phrase Uh, I'd like to uh, continue the thoughts that Rabbi Blau raised and maybe look at the whole problem from a different point of view uh, if we had the opportunity here in Eretz Israel to determine the kind of government that we thought was best, so we could look at it as he did, I think, in a kind of theoretical way. What's the theoretical demand of uh, the Torah? Certainly there are opinions that the theoretical depend of the Torah is malchut. There is such an opinion. And since we're used to the notion of being Mahmir, right, we, in order to kind of satisfy all of the opinions that we can satisfy at once, we should uh, uh, go into this and, and try malchut. I mean, how we would find the king and make David. And today we have uh, different kinds of genetic testing for kohanim, maybe somebody would invent genetic testing for the House of David as well somehow. There are, after all, famous Jews who claim that they were descendants of David HaMelech. But there's another way to look at it, I think. And that is also uh, something that uh, Rabbi Blau mentioned, and that is, at the end, he discussed the Netziv's inclination to say that it depends that Malchus is a tremendous obligation on both sides. The obligation of the people to accept the authority and the obligation of the king to be able to uh, use his authority widely, wisely. And uh, that's a difficult thing. Certainly the idea expressed in the Tosefta and Soto that the king had to walk around with a sefer Torah uh, uh, strapped to his arm in order to uh, indicate to himself that uh, he's obligated by the Torah. Be malachem That the pasuk in Mishlei. That that itself indicates, I think, the difficulty of the undertaking. And even if you don't, uh, um, if you don't sympathize with this uh, notion of the difficulty of the undertaking, uh, you have to admit that a cursory reading of Shmuel Aleph Shmuel Beit, and and maybe even a less cursory reading would also be good. Uh, seem to indicate that not everybody, in fact, most of the people who are called kings, just didn't do it very well, and the measure of their uh, lack of success is uh, is hard to hard to believe. I mean. It was almost true that they denied the very Torah itself. They re-established idolatry where it didn't exist before. They acted in uh, despicable manners, to say the least. And even though from time to time there was a light. Yerushiel HaMelech or Chizkiyel HaMelech but overall Malchut passed down by the, the, the father to his biological progeny didn't seem to actually didn't seem to actually work. You know that the Rambam in Hilkos Tshuva when he discusses free will, he says you could be a wonderful person, a righteous person, even a person like Moshe Rabbeinu, but when he looks for the evil person he says you could be as evil as Yerobam ben Nevat Now you know Yerobam ben Nevat was appointed by a prophet to be the king of Israel as a punishment, I guess, uh, to uh, the attitude of Shlomo HaMelech and his son Rehava, who were uh, Shlomo HaMelech, of course, had tremendous redeeming features, but Rehava only inherited the negatives and the the oppression that he planned against the Na Israel. And he, Rabbi Ben David, was appointed by the Navi to be a bomb or a sad to the terrible situation that was being created and here he turns out to be the worst of people of course it's discussed in the gemara at the end of Sanhedrin but that's not the the point that i'm making the point that i'm making is that malchus even when the melech is appointed by the king there's no garret by that by the by the prophet i mean there's no guarantee that he that he will be able to match up to the hopes that people had when he was first appointed. The second um, experience that we had with Malchus and Ertus was, of course, the time of there <coughs> It's not clear they did the right thing or the wrong thing, whether uh, they denied the Mitzvah Torah since they were Kohanim. Okay, there's this kind of argument about the initial phase of Hasmonaic leadership, but there is no argument about the final phase of the Hasmoniic leadership what it developed into and and actually in many ways produced the destruction of the temple. I mean the situation in Eretz on all levels was uh, was so difficult and so unbearable to heaven that the only possibility would be would be destruction. Now we've had we as Jews, have had good experience with uh, democracy since the French Revolution. It's true that democracy, of course, uh, has its roots in in Greek thinking and Greek uh, organization, but if we take the period from the French Revolution, even though not, uh, if you compare the situation of Jews who lived in, in kingdoms and the Jews who lived in democracies, I think there's very little doubt that democracy has provided the Jews with uh, a good way of dealing with uh, disparate needs of the larger community and of their own community. And it was that ability that the founding fathers, if I call them that, of the State of Israel thought to bring into Eretz Israel. And since today, we know that Eretz Israel is a country in which 80% of the people are not Orthodox. Maybe more. I mean, it's hard for me to define exactly what Mesorati means, but they're not Orthodox. I mean, they don't, 80% of the people are not Orthodox. And yet, in an amazing uh, manner, democracy has provided Orthodoxy against the will of many of the leaders of the old-time or, or, or primary Zionists who would have liked very much, who came from a world in which religion was deemed to be unnecessary and uh, divisive at best and 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 mentally retarded at, at worst, they would have liked to do away with it for the good of the people. I mean, they didn't cut the payers off of the Yemenite children because they wanted hair to make shaitels. They cut the paint <laughs> off the Yemenite children because they thought they were doing them a favor. I mean, it could be that there was you know, there was a wickedness also in there someplace. But you imagine, you go to, it's like the English, you go to India and they say, we're going to bring you the real world. I mean, we're going to bring you what we have. we You have uh, gold and silver and we have... We have modernity and progress and, and literature. And I think that that's what happened also in Eretz Israel. And nevertheless, in spite of all that, the Jews, because of the democracy that exists, because of the crazy system that we have here, crazy, I mean using my uh, background as an American as a basis, we have this crazy system that a party that, that has 10 votes or 10 or 12 seats out of 120 can create the government, so to speak. So this crazy system, uh, which, you know, I, I'm not sure why this system was chosen over the American uh, presidential system, uh, uh, this crazy
0: system, which also has its craziness. Okay, it might mm-hmm. mean like in the states vote, and uh, whatever, well, okay. every system has its own... Uh, Every no, but once you elect the president, he's the president. I mean, yeah. here when you elect, them, even some, if he got fewer votes than the other guy.
2: Okay, okay, that's a, that's true. But once he every he system, job, every, system <coughs> <will occasionally, coughs> every system will occasionally hiccup. Uh, but this system, the system in Eretz Yisrael, allows a small group of people numerically okay. to affect a tremendous have a tremendous effect on the system at large. And, and who knows what a, what a melech would do I mean objectively speaking objectively speaking I mean if you put it into the context of the nativo or the Barbanella, benel that's what you are inclined to do and say it's not so much an argument with malchus because malchus is really impossible and you put it into the context of the abar and the netziv it turns out that not only is democracy possible not only is uh, democracy a a a reasonable kind of choice but democracy turns out to be a great choice it's the only choice and it's a great choice because the results in the state of Israel indicate that democracy allows people to have influence even if they are not the ruling party it's true that sometimes they, they get upset about not having as much influence as they would have liked but you see clearly by by just testing the number of people who are learning Torah, the number of of advantages that uh, not advantages but the number of leniencies sometimes that religious soldiers have because of their needs as religious people, you see that democracy has allowed all of this to happen, whereas it's not uh, certain that a monarchy would be able to do it. That it's interesting, you know. They always say that Moshe called America a Malkus Shel Chesed he could have said Democratiah but he said Malchus, because Malchus means that there's somebody in charge. Maybe that's the Pshat that you can choose a Melech but you have to have somebody in charge. And so when B'nai Yisrael came to Shmuel Avi, they said two things. One thing they said was we want a king and the second thing they said we want somebody in charge. and Avi said but I'm in charge. They said, no, you're an intellectual, you're a thinker, you're you believe that good and bad works itself out somehow. We want somebody in charge. So the model that they had at that time, of course, was a king, so they said a king. But today, Moshe says, America's (laughs) mouthless, even though every four years, there's a new melech. So maybe that's what he meant. That also covers the notion of mouthless if you interpret it in a certain way, and even though... Okay, it's true that we, we like to go the chumra, like and take care of all the shi'ut. But here, no one's asking us in America uh, how the system of government should should work. And for to call it malchus, I think is a is a great compliment to the American system and what it has enabled the Jewish people to do. So I think here in Israel and Eretz Israel, even though there are some children running around in the West Bank who uh, Somehow learned about Melech. They learned that passion when they went to shul or something, and they say, "How real, real Jews, you know, would have a, a kingship." I mean, to me, it's it's inconceivable at the amount of lack of thought that goes into that position, and that it's quite uh, quite obvious that uh, Eretz Israel is doing uh, a wonderful job really, in spite of its problems, we know that there are problems, are integrating um, large communities that are disparate from each other, have different needs and different desires, and yet somehow feel that they're all included in the system, even though there are gripes, of course. There are people who feel that they haven't gotten enough and they haven't got ahead enough and they aren't able to do what they want to every time, but in general, in general, everybody has. One, one last point, and we talk about religious people. You know, Rav Cook was the one who didn't want women to vote and who um, was uh, uh, very skeptical about joining hands with the, uh, even though Abbas Israel, of course, said, you work, you know, you, everybody is in the deal. But working together, he was a little skeptical about, it. and so also Gudak Israel and the various up, uh, offshoots. But today, everybody's in. I mean, the only people who are not in are the uh, are what they call the Haider, which, of course, they're not in because people talk about them. If they were in, people stop talking about them and realize that they don't really exist. The head of Hatsola, who was an ex-Torah person once said was interviewed. I heard him interviewed on the radio. And that he he was given the honor of lighting one of the torches on Yom HaTsloav, and he took the honor. So they interviewed him on the radio. And they said, "What happened to you, Meshi zahab You're uh, you're the Torah He says, "I changed my mind." They said, well, "How do you change your mind?" He says, "Well, first I thought." that five million people were wrong and five hundred people were right and then I realized that five million people were probably right and that the five hundred people were wrong so it seems to me that that's what democracy has, has produced everybody is in not a hundred percent and not everybody just like not everybody in the in Knesset comes to Daven Mincha uh, not everybody who Daven's Mincha goes to every function that might be organized by the Knesset. But everybody's in. Everybody is part of the system. And for this, we have to
0: thank uh, democracy. Rani well, uh, Our eschatological hopes that the Mashiach will somehow look like the way things were in the days of a Melech proper yeah. Are you prepared to say that that might not might be that not might not be the case? That
2: Look, I, I think I, I have a different take on eschatological hopes. I don't think eschatological hopes relate; they relate to the future and they relate to the present. When Rav Nachman of Breslov says you can't be depressed. What he means is that you can't think that the situation that you're in, it's forbidden to think that the situation that you're in cannot be adjusted by heaven and that's what faith in the end of days gives us right? I don't have to know exactly what the end of days are about like pace Rambam, I don't have to be able to define who the Mashiach is and how he will appear and what, where he'll get his suit and, uh, you know, for his major appearance and whether it'll be on YouTube. Or, I don't have to know any of that. But I have to know that there's an end. And if there's an end, that means that it, it's an, it, does, it has an effect now. It's a now thing. And the now of it is... That I'm optimistic. That I'm hopeful. That uh, that things will. That even I, in my miserable situation, I'm moving things in the right direction. So, so why should I be depressed? I'm not saying this is an easy thing, or that you know it's a solution to uh, to mental or emotional uh, issues, but but it's uh, it's a point of view. It's a point of view where you can de-emphasize this idea that we're going to win because the Mashiach is going to come which may be true but it's not so relevant to me and instead I replace that by the notion that if the Mashiach is going to come so I'm winning now I'm doing the right thing I'm I'm moving in the right direction whatever little movement I'm able to generate
0: I'm not sure you answered the question
2: I think what you said is we don't know. No, we don't know about the future, but since yeah. we know that that will be
1: the future, then it has an effect mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. present. I would say it a little bit differently, but perhaps this is what Ryan Romner is, is saying. It's like the gap between the Messianic Era and our current situation means that we can't really read back from the political structure we envision in the Messianic Era to now. I think it's true, even according to the Ramban, who was uh, someone more of a naturalistic <coughs> understanding, of what the messianic will, messianic era will be. Even if one reaches a channukah lachem, there's quite a gap between uh, life as it exists in mashiach and as it exists now. So I think we can go on positing that there will be some restoration of malchut without that indicating that that's the ideal government in the here and now, or that,
0: in other words, one can imagine malchut which still operates under some kind of democratic impulse. like England? I wouldn't say exactly like
1: England. Um. Uh, I'd like to just pick up on two things that I brought you to, I think we're, we're not going to uh, disagree a little here. <laughs> uh, you mentioned about Moshe's phrase, of Malkhut Chol Chesed, Perhaps there's a certain way of thinking of Malkuth as actually opening the off to democracy. And this is as follows. This is something actually I picked up by reading an article by Professor Blitzstein in a book called Tolerance, Descent, and Democracy. And he quotes a phrase from Mavar and Lichtenstein called the civil sovereign. And the point seems to be, arguably, a religious community would want religious leadership to make all the decisions, right? So who should be running Israel? So the rabbis, the Sahedrin, the Navi, they should be making all these decisions. And it's quite fascinating that this is another institution called Malchut. Now, perhaps it's unfair to call Malchut secular, and certainly the Melech is supposed to represent religious vision. As Rabbi Ramallah mentioned, he's supposed to always have a sacred Torah with him. So he does represent religious values, or at least ideally, he should represent religious values. At the same time, he is a separate body of leadership, distinct from the Sanhedrin and the Name and the so perhaps, again, I'm not equating, of course, malchut and democracy, but just that the very basic Torah system, even positing that malchut would be an ideal, is also assuming that there's a civil sovereign who runs things, and it's not just like the rabbis who are making every civil, social, and political decision. That's one thing I want to point out. The other thing I want to point out, that uh, there mentioned, you could in theory say we should be machmir, right? And since some positions, the Rambam and others, think that kingship is a, a demand, is an obligation, we should be Mahmur and follow that position. Of course, as is often the case, uh, you know, one of the things we evaluate when choosing to be Machmir is what's the cost of being Machmir. and if we really agree, which I think Brahman and I and perhaps many listeners would agree, that given the current political reality, democracy is more efficient and serves the Jewish people in a much more effective way, so it would seem to be a reasonable choice to not be Machmir in this particular issue. Uh, I think I agree with uh,
2: generally with what Rabbi Blau was saying and I would just like to, to add at the beginning he mentioned that um, religious people might be interested in a kind of governance by rabbis but the rabbis I, I mean how would they govern a, a, a smart rabbis <laughs> I guess that, that's what we're talking about I mean, smart rabbis realize their lack of uh, knowledge and experience in certain areas. And governance is not like uh, telling somebody it will all be alright if he drinks a bottle of water. It's it's a heavy kind of responsibility. And therefore, even though, I mean, it's kind of comical that even though in the religious parties all accept the... uh, Uh, some sort of determination by a rabbinic personality, but the rabbinic personality is totally dependent on the report of the Chavrei Knesset to tell him what is actually going on I mean he's not going to go to the Knesset and sit there instead of learning Torah so that uh, it's true, it's always good to have another clever person add his voice to the analysis, but the analysis often comes from outside of that religious personality, and it's good, it's a very good system, certainly the religious personality, who knows a lot, of a lot of Torah, might be able to to be sensitive to a problem that the Chavrei Knesset, because they spend all their time doing other things, would not be sensitive to, so I think symbiotically it turns out to be a good thing uh, to have a uh, 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 different kinds of advisors, and just like everybody would certainly go to an expert in military affairs, an expert on economic affairs, and even though you always say you have to make the decision yourself, I think that going to an expert on on Judaism is not uncalled for in any uh, in any of these things. But we have to recognize the fact that the expert on Judaism is an expert on Judaism. And his ability to relate to to the uh, civil issues or to the governmental issues is totally dependent on what people tell him. And the people who tell him things get used to it. I mean, I'm not saying that they're bad people, but if they have issues they probably learn, probably learn how to present it so that their side of the issue sounds better. Again. I'm sure that the that the that the religious leadership are not a bunch of fools and are not easily duped, but I can see that this could become a kind of a um, a, a sort of expertise that you develop. You know, a lot of the chaverik nessed, the, the religious parties, are chaverik for a long, long time, and they learn how to how to make the presentation. Uh, the fact that, uh, that now uh, Kadima was not able to form a government because of Shas—I mean, I guess it'll take a long time to figure out who generated that situation and why it was impossible for Shas to uh, to join the government. Uh, and uh, who knows whether it was from the the Chida Rabbani down to the Chaverik—that's it. Or from of the Chaver Knesset bounced up to the Rabbanim and coming down, I mean, it's a very hard thing, very hard thing to assess. But in general, I think it's a good thing for religious people to be able to seek advice and, and talk about their problems. I mean their administrative, national problems with Rabbanim Yidolei Torah, and I'm sure that they would have uh, important things to say about uh, those those aspects and it is not it's not a denial in any way i think of democracy you know what i mean that's what people do i mean people talk to others who are, who they feel are experts and they try to listen carefully and gain like 50 years of expertise in a half an hour, half hour conversation that may be a problem in government
0: today well no well, that being said uh, a, <coughs> you know america of course has you know written between the lines the stripes of its flag the notion of a separation of church and state, separation of religion and state and there's a general a notion that it may seem paradoxical but in fact that separation is what's created America as probably the most you know, religious, certainly the most religious democracy, I'm leaving out certain fundamentalist, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe some fundamentalist uh, Islamic uh, nations, um, the most the most religious democracy in the world. In other words, religion is, is just so deeply enrooted in, in the American civic culture in its own way. Here in Israel, of course, we don't have that separation of religion and state, And that leads to, you know, stemming, of course, from, uh, you know, from this uh, apocryphal, the apocryphal uh, meeting between the Chazonish and and Ben Gurion, uh, the status quo in which, uh, in which uh, halachic Judaism. Uh, sometimes Halachic Judaism, as interpreted in the hands of, you know, right-wing Haredim who are not even partners to the vision of a, of a Zionist state, um, are in a position to enact what's interpreted by some as coercive legislation and to set a certain agenda. And you know, of course, there were, you know, there were people over the years, uh, you know, such as Rabbi Yehuda Amital. Who who argued that you know a separation of religion and state in Israel will lead to to more religion, um, although perhaps not uh, as envisioned by those uh, those uh, descendants of the those ideological descendants of the of the Chazon Ish. Uh, what do we think about that? About the, about, the, about the so-called status quo. I,
2: I think I, I came from America where it was sort of I was taught since I was a little kid that separation of church and state is a good thing and so when I came to Israel I uh, I found uh, the fact that there were religious parties somewhat annoying but today today especially when the some religious parties of the Mahdal Ilk have kind of admitted that they have disappeared so I see that uh, that It was a temporary thing. I I mean, it may be that at the beginning, in order to establish a reshet, uh, a series of schools called Mamlachti Dati, you needed a a religious presence in order to maintain them, in order to set up these yeshivotes there and make sure that they would be funded. I I mean, it may be that the system, the people who came from other societies, so Eastern European societies, where they may have thought in different ways about about religion. Maybe the only way to deal with that situation was a church and state integrated uh, policy. But I see that with the just yesterday, I mean it happened just yesterday that the Mafdao committed Harry Carey, which was not a result of the fact that they were.
0: Maybe explain uh, to our listeners what you're referring to. Uh,
2: the, 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 that team, the, the religious party, the famous... a religious Zionists. The religious then. Zionists uh, made a coalition with other right-wing parties and are blasting that they are not any longer a strictly speaking religious kind of party, but they're looking for other people who have similar views to join with them. In, in other words, the fact that they were religious or had a religious orientation was simply no longer tenable. I mean, they thought people would vote for them. They certainly wouldn't have done this. But they don't think people would vote for them, even though there are more young people today in There there more young couples in Kola, there are more people who...
0: More Daki more religious scientists. Yeah, more yeah.
2: religious eyes who might vote for... But, but they see that what has been accomplished has been accomplished, and it doesn't seem that there's really any point to maintaining the framework and so they they're jettisoning it, and and uh, maybe that happened in America. You have to also be a bit of an expert. America started out as a very religious society. It's very interesting that religion was not incorporated into into the system of government. That, you know that deserves a a discussion by people who are really experts in It's an interesting it's an interesting uh, uh, question. So. I think that that's the way of the world. I mean, as long as the Haredim see themselves, well, two things you have to say of the Haredim, right? One is that they're in. I mean, the, they're in the Knesset. I mean, they walk around, they talk, they walk, and they, they have this job and that job, and that. they're important, and they have to say things that are oriented to the Bidina. Like when Litzman was, have Knesset Litzman was head of the finance committee, he couldn't just say, I'm just here to get money for Haredi. He had to say that uh, he has, he's here to get money for everybody, uh, whatever it is that he thought that uh, had to be done. So they're in. So I imagine that something similar, to that, even though the control in the Haredi community is much stronger, but even in 1977, starting in 1977, there was bleeding in the direction of the Likud. So a lot of people who who saw the Likud as an opportunity, and especially the Haredi guys who fly on planes and, and do business and and are you know upwardly mobile, so to speak, they're not so locked into the to the traditional uh, to the traditional forms. And even though Rav was a great leader it had a tremendous influence, for example. I think that ultimately what happened to the Maftal is in some ways the Charedim are the Maftal of now because once the Maftal was concerned about Shabbos, for example, in the Medina, how it would look. They had this idea that, okay, you're a Shabbos at home, but nationally you should be Shomer Shabbos. Now, no that Mumi person thinks that anymore. I mean, they're not going to make a party based on that. But the Haredim, they do think about that. They're, they're sort of like moved into that niche. Right. And I assume that they'll keep moving. They'll be moving just as the mafdao moves. So that, I, I think democracy implies a separation of church and state. Because the, the idea that there's some other force that is going to make decisions is really unacceptable. I think. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't explain that now, and therefore, and I think that the religious people understand that they can't be a part of a system which sometimes will knock them down as religious people, but if they were just an interest group, that would be fine, it would work out better, because, you know, you win some, you lose some, right, but you don't have to sign the check. So I think that uh, that the way I don't know why in America that system was preferred, even though you know there are always rumblings about creationists and you know this kind of all these kinds of things go on in America. But in Israel, I think that the movement will definitely be uh, more open and accepting, and maybe they'll be in in the Knesset, but they'll be part of some larger body that. because there's no point to it. There's no point to being a Haredi in the knesset once you get the money.
0: I look at America. If your prediction is right that Israel is moving away from it, I, I wonder the degree to which America is moving towards it. In other words, not that there'll be not that there'll be a uh, uh, you know a blurring of the. The iron wall between well, they have the, the fundamentalists. fundamentalists but 25 percent of the United States are evangelical Christians, yeah. in Christians, and okay. uh, I mean, you see the degree to which these, these, even the selection of Palin as vice president to just pander to this, this it, group. It, it's, it's true, but my
2: assumption is that the New Yorker will win.
0: <laughs> that someday they'll read the New Yorker. We are all uh, we are all three that. of us avid <laughs> avid readers of the New Yorker. <laughs> On I mean, the, the shelf behind you, there's an interesting book uh, which was written probably, uh, I don't know, f- 15, 18, 20 years ago by by the great, uh, you know, uh, analyzer of these set of ideas, Gary Will's, called Under God, about the role of religion in, in American society and American politics.
1: Uh, even though my basic sympathies are against religious legislation, religious coercion. I think it's a mistake to posit democracy and religion as polar opposites, in that democracy is totally in favor of individual freedom, and religion has this coercive element. I and mean, democracies have coercive elements as well. There are communal values that are realized in a coercive way. The governments collect taxes, and a certain amount of that tax money goes to museums. So that's a value judgment that this is something that should happen in society. One couldn't possibly run a government without making... I guess unless one thinks it's a fully libertarian position, which seems to me not such a practical position. Uh, The argument that some liberal thinkers make that religious values have to be excluded from the public square because they're not shared by everyone in the constituency seems to me totally fallacious. That's what a democracy is. People have different values and different ideals, and they're all brought to the table, and there's no reason why the religious judgments should be excluded from the public discourse. And from that perspective, if religious parties is the best way to ensure that those religious values are part of the public discourse, so that maybe religious parties are a good thing. I think that that's something to keep in mind. I think uh, there's a whole movement now of what's called communitarianism right, arguing against the more individualistic perspective of how man works. Right, people like Charles Taylor and Michael Sandel have claimed that liberal writers often portray every individual as the atomic self. It's just that individual whose freedoms need protecting. They point out the, the individual identity himself is part of a group doesn't come out of nowhere. Right? The individual identity is formed in, in a community, and certain communal values are part of that individual identity. Right? You can't just think of what the individual, every individual per se would need for protection. Right? These communal values should be part of the communal discourse. And again, perhaps religious parties is the way to advance those needs. Right? Arguably, religious parties in the government have been crucial for certain uh, getting uh, funding for certain religious projects. At the same time, as I mentioned in the beginning, I I think uh, we have a real sense that coercion is often problematic. Quite frankly, it's often counterproductive. Uh, We'd like to encourage the more secular part of the state of Israel to be interested in religion. And often their perspective of religion is religion is the one that tells them what to do when they don't want to do it, or... uh, Unfortunately, certain more extreme elements, both in the Haredi world and in the Dalti-Lumi world, have sometimes contributed to giving religion a bad name. And we need to think how to win one of them over, and I think often in a uh, more educational manner. And this is something that one gets in many acronyms in the sense that perhaps it's a good thing that we've lost the ability to course. Where Cook has a famous letter of Freedom of Opinion, where he views it as a sense of divine providence, that we've lost the ability to course in uh, these matters. A very, very different than Rob. Rob Henkin certainly did not agree with Cook on a host of issues. but Henkin basically says the same thing. He also views it as a, an act of divine providence that we've lost the leader course. And I think this is something uh, that maybe uh, from even a religious values perspective it would be a good thing to try to bring people to religion through education, through basic human decency in our encounters in the streets. Uh, I think that will be more effective in the long run than coercion and legislation. in other words in the distinction between
0: the atomic self and the uh, more communal notion um, the problem with sectarian politics whether it's religious sectarian or or any other type of sectarian politics we have a lot of that here in Israel of course you have have political parties on every you you know a number of years ago there was a party that ran for the Knesset called I think it was called Al Hagalgal or something like that it was a party of taxi cab drivers Uh, and I was very surprised that they didn't that they didn't win and form the government because their platform was they were against uh, traffic jams, and whether you're left, right, or center, whether you're secular or you're Haredi, nobody likes traffic jams. But they didn't pass the threshold and get in. But that just shows the ridiculousness of the whole thing. There's a party that runs every every time for Knesset, uh, the the Green Leaf Party that wants to legal, you know, on the on the one issue of legalizing on the one issue of legalizing marijuana. There was a party that got into the Knesset last time and was actually influential in helping form the government, the Gimlaim, the the, reti- the retirees, right, which is a very important uh, sector, more important than those others that I mentioned, but is a very narrow, is a very narrow, brings a very narrow set of issues to the table. And in the, in the distinction between the kind of a communal mindset where you try to look at what's best for our society, the coercion, or what's viewed as coercion, where one sector, a minority sector, is able to leverage, because of the uniqueness of our parliamentary system here in Israel, where one sector is able to leverage um, uh, you know, legislation and societal norms based upon what they think is best for the, 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 the entire commune, um, even though the majority may <laughs> disagree with them, is it, a different kind of thing. It's not what Rawls was thinking, you know, when he talked about the the veil of ignorance, that everyone would act out of the best interests of the of of the society at large, out of some kind of ignorance, or you could suspend your your knowledge of what's in your own personal best interests, um, and that and then that would create the, the great society. Um, that's not the way things work. No one suspended uh, their their sense of their own personal interests, and no one no one operates under the the Rosian veil of ignorance. I think we have to, to state that when we talk about building a building a society, particularly when the like I said, every system has its hiccups, where you have this hiccup based upon this historical status quo, which gives which which tilts towards the and, and I'm and I'm uh, I'm in favor of uh, religious legislation, but uh, but I understand why it's objectionable. To so many maybe one last one last question, <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Brovny.
2: I I'd just like to make a, a comment and tell a short story. The comment is that a, a one way of looking at, at coalition is that I make a coalition with people who say and think things that I'm not really against. I don't stand for them. And so that every party in the history of, until recently, it's always said, this party I'm not going to ever be able to make a coalition with, right? Mapai used to say, communists are out. Because the communists had beliefs that Mapai could not absorb, even tangentially, into their into their uh, way of thinking about things. But non-religious people can accept the idea that religious kids should go to school and that the schools should have bathrooms and they should be able to get bus to those schools. I mean, they may not, may not be their issue, but it's not an issue that they're against. And the same reason that, say, the winning party could make a coalition with the marijuana party For its seat, if it got a seat, because he'll say, okay, listen, you know what, it's not my issue, but it's not that we would be so opposed to allowing people to grow marijuana, that's what a coalition is, it allows you to accept positions which are not uh, um, offensive to you, but you're not going to push for them, it's like a good thing for you, and, and, and
0: stick to your guns, and you
2: have somebody else
0: who does the other thing. In some ways, that's the of Shas. That Shas is, in some ways, the most open-minded party, because they can and they have been the perennial coalition partner, whether the right is in power or the left is in power. The parties have no opinion about right. anything right. except their own issues, which is a great way to do
2: it. Right. Uh, the story is that a Rosh Hashiva, a well-known Rosh who. Subsequently, was Nifter, and therefore you can't check on the story. He told me to follow the story. He told me to the story, and his father was elected to the city council in Bnei Brak. In those days, Bnei Brak included more territory. It had a lot of non-religious people in it, and uh, being on the, and the head of the city council, the mayor was not a was a non-religious person. So he went to the Chazanish, and he said to him, "Can I be in the city council?" He said, "So what's the question?" The question was that in order for him to get uh, money to support the Beit code system in Benyabrak, he would have to vote for giving money to Hashomer who are uh, openly atheistic in their in their position. Chazon Ish apparently responded without hesitation, "Of course you can. The important thing is what you do for the people that you are there to serve." And you hope that the other people will somehow be able to come around to your way of thinking. You're not doing anybody any good, but not getting the money for Beit Yaakov. So this was kind of an ultimate uh, integrative position, like recognizing where the other people were, even though they were totally uh, uh, non-religious and, and openly non-religious, not like today, people, everybody says, Yir to Hashem, it's like a, they have a little card, index cards of Marseille, and they say things like that, and uh, even Paris says Yir to Hashem now all the time, mm-hmm. even though, uh, I mean, Paris is, a, is an example of a person who, who was religious and became absolutely non-religious, not like Begin who is a person who always maintained connections with the tradition and with religion in one way or the other, Harris was not like that, but he sees that if you want to be accepted by the broad range of people in Eretz Israel and do something that's not going to turn you away from the non-religious sector of Eretz Israel, so you say, Amirat so I guess that's a good thing. I mean, it's sort of like it's an opener. It makes it easier to to approach with other things. So, the Hazanish was the one who said that if the cost is be respectful of the other person, it's the same. You, know, you just have to work in your direction.
0: Closing thoughts? I thank our panelists, Rabbi Chaim Bravender and Rabbi Yitzchak Blau. I'm Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid and the Web Yeshiva. We hope that you will tune in again for future discussions on other Matters of Import, and that you'll visit us at webyeshiva.org and sign up for the array of online, interactive uh, live uh, shiurim that we offer. And remember, as they used to say in Chicago, vote early and often.